0: Apparently, some guy bought a first class airline ticket, fully refundable. You can change it. You know, it's full, full fare, first class ticket. And he just went to the airport every day and ate free in the VIP lounge and then would call and reschedule his flight every day for a year. And then when somebody caught on and called him on it, he just canceled it and got his money back. I mean, work from home and eat for free from the, the lounge at the airport. That
1: is brilliant because you want to sit in that comfort lounge.
0: I mean, who needs WeWork? Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 288. I'm Reed Smith, that is Chris Boyer.
1: Reed, I'm working out of
0: my home office
1: today, not in the airport lounge. Decided that my my home lounge is much more comfortable than going to the airport.
0: You know, it's uh, not a bad idea. There's pretty decent food in those lounges and all your devices will be charged at all times.
1: And lots of biscotti cookies, too.
0: Exactly. Lots of spicy cashews and stuff like that that you can't find anywhere else. So, <laughs> All right. Well, hey, welcome to the show. Thanks, to everybody, for tuning in again for another week of Touchpoint. Again, I'm going to do a quick plug here for the website, touchpoint.health, and our weekly newsletter, the TPS Report. So if you go out to the website, you'll notice up in the top navigation the TPS report. Click on that, give us your name, your email address, and all we're going to do is each Monday send you an email with five articles to kick off your week. So super simple, quick reads, uh, you can scan them one week, all five articles may be exactly what you're looking for. And the next week, uh, maybe not. And it's, uh, that's okay. Just something that hopefully kind of sparks uh, some conversations with your uh, team and maybe something you can share and and would be useful as you make your way through the week. So again, touchpoint.health is the website. We'll pause here, give you a second to go bounce over there and sign up for the TPS report. And then we'll be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors.
1: Sure is, and Reed, consider this, 86% of patients today read online reviews, and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating.
0: Demand, they demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And
1: look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com touchpoint. That's reputation.com touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Today, Reed, we're going to talk a little bit about data security. Actually, we're going to talk a lot about data security because it's becoming more and more top of mind to us working in hospitals and health systems. And I almost see this as like sort of an extension of uh, some of the recent shows, almost like a sequel, if you will, to we did a recent show about Facebook pixels and the kind of the challenges with that and we also talked a little bit about how we, we measure and digital transformation. Data is kind of the underlying current of conversation across all of this.
0: It, it is. Matter of fact, I just got off a call with my team talking about data, data warehouses, payer data, you know, how we're proving ROI, where we're pulling information from, how we get stuff out of Epic, you know, looking at volume trend, you know, so it doesn't really matter what the context is. Data continues to be something that people are starting to realize, you know, wow, we have a lot of that. We should probably maximize its value.
1: Right, but also layering on top of that is the fact that consumer perception of data collection is changing and we're becoming more and more sensitive around data security. Third-party companies are starting to get involved, and even laws are being changed and enacted that are impacting all of this. So it's kind of an interesting world where the more data we have, the more we actually kind of look at it, the more we also realize that we have to be very careful about how we're going to be managing it. So today we're going to get into some of the challenges and also opportunities of using healthcare data.
0: Let's do it. First article on the agenda from eConsultancy.com. It's a the shift to first party data. So again, this is a current article 2022 article, but the, the shift to first party data. We've talked a lot about this on the show here recently, well, really over time, but especially here recently talking about cookies and advertising and things like that. And they start out in here talking about the fact that the third party cookie is really been, you know, kind of how we have targeted our messages, you know, digital advertising specifically. But as we've mentioned this is all going away. Yeah, We're going to have to think of different ways uh, to personalize people's experiences. But Google's forthcoming sunsetting of the technology, I mean, it's not happening next week, but still, uh, markers will have to find that new way.
1: But it's not only Google that's going this route. Uh, I think it's a trend in all kind of larger technologies. Think about Apple tightening up its privacy protections. We know that Facebook is doing that too. In fact, I just recently got some notifications about Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, and some of their changes. They're really, it's tightening. We're kind of reinforcing the need that we should stop relying so much on this third-party data, and we as organizations need to start collecting this first-party data. As we see that, though, let's kind of level set against what we do as a company. Data ownership has to be top of mind. With many brands, as we're kind of moving towards this data approach, this first-party data collection, that's kind of a, a, a top-of-mind thing to many of us.
0: And they call out in here the, the fact that regulators are, are going to start, maybe not just start, but continue but put focus on the ethical collection of that owned data. You know, we may already be thinking this way, but they uh, have in here that 94% of marketers surveyed as part of their future of marketing report, again, by consultancy, say that privacy should be a significant factor in the design of any sort of a uh, marketing uh, measurement strategy. I mean, think
1: about that. That's uh, taking an ethical approach to your marketing measurement strategy. I think we in healthcare, I think we're much more cautious than other industries, but good data ethics they call out is not just compliance about establishing good relationships with consumers and offering them value in return. They say here in their same study, only 56% of marketers believe their organization offers a clear value in return for customers sharing their data.
0: I'm surprised it's that high. (laughs) The amount of emails that I delete on a daily basis, I mean, I just, I'm going to have to just get a new personal email address, I guess, and start over. It's insane. Absolutely insane. You know, the amount of information that's coming at people. And so if we think about consumers uh, you know you're this is not a b2b message which is, is noisy enough but b2 C I think is even worse as it relates to like email I mean there's just there's so much just so much coming at them
1: that's the thing here right it's about the value of what we could provide them as value and in, in this particular case is it just you know that they want to have some kind of conversation is are they opting in for a health risk assessment whatever they're doing the article goes even further on to highlight that says this first party data strategy is not just about making sure that our advertising is efficient it's about providing value to the customer through recognizing their preferences
0: yeah i like that and they they do say in here you know Speak to you know some of the challenges or whatnot. Data and privacy uh, environment is is partnered with a sense of optimism about what will that mean for the future. So, what is kind of that new world order? I think these changes, and they're talking here about the anticipation of these changes enforced by these external factors. So you know we've got people coming in saying, hey, we're not doing this anymore. You know we're we're not deciding. Necessarily, uh, you know Google or whoever, it may actually lead us down a path to a more consumer-centric marketing approach. And so, looking at improving those customer experiences, for example, I, I mean, I think that's an interesting way to look at it for sure.
1: This whole trend here around first-party data collection is not only impacting the marketing aspects of of, of our environments. Let's go a little bit further in an additional article that we found on Forbes about sort of the data security issues that have to be prioritized in our industry. Um, Forbes, our good friends at Forbes,
0: our good friends,
1: published an article about this, and they kind of highlighted some of the things they 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 state that with the continued digitization of the healthcare industry, you know, like electronic patient portals, AI, machine learning, etc., the risk of cyber attacks has increased dramatically. In fact, last year. Healthcare data breaches has hit an all-time high. 45 million individuals were affected by healthcare breaches in 2021 alone, which is up over uh, 10 million from 2020 and triple the 14 million individuals impacted in 2018. That's crazy to think about.
0: It really is. And, you know, I've said all along, like, hey, we've got all this data. And, you know, the, the more data you have in one place, the more valuable it becomes, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, uh, apparently that's true. But yeah. As we continue to digitize the industry, as they put it, I mean, where there's value, people are going to go figure out. You know, this is always I, I remember early on people were like, oh, you know, uh, you just can't get a virus on a Mac, you know. Kind of a thing, right? And I was like, "Well, it's because the market's not big enough." You, you'd much rather, you know, create spyware, or malware, or whatever for PCs because there, there, yeah, you know, there's so many more of them. Now, I mean, there is some security there, and I don't want to take us off track, but again, yeah, that's kind of what we're talking about here. We've created this value. They're talking here about, you know, it, you know, in order to safeguard uh, the data systems, data security must uh, immediately become a strategic agenda item. For our executives, So they say now more than ever, it's critical hospitals and healthcare systems have proper cybersecurity measures in place, you know, and know what to do. Right. And so just like we have disaster drills and, you know, all that other kind of stuff that we do, what's the, you know, code pink and different, you know, we, we do all yeah. these drills, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this is, this is a very similar thing. And you see a lot of that, right? You know, there's, there's phishing attempts that are run, you know, internally. And if you do it. Well, then, you know, guess what? You've just signed up for training, so basically.
1: Yeah, and they found that in the industry itself read based on a 2021 report by IBM, the healthcare industry has taken the biggest financial hit from data breaches, with an average cost of 9.23 million dollars per incident. That's like over 2 million dollars more than what it was in 2020. And while it's impossible for us to be protected, this whole concept of adopting modern cybersecurity measures It really will become important for us to improve the speed of detection, containment and remediation because the last thing we need is that as sort of like an outlier on our bottom line here, particularly because we we want to divest some of our funding towards better initiatives.
0: And that's where uh, they call it in here, you know, considerations for third party organizations, for example, and this is why we have BAAs in place and stuff like that. But, you know, we need to make sure that all of our third parties that we, we engage with, you know, have all the same measures in place right and that is an entry point it's another door or window maybe i guess you know into into our data into our systems
1: and lastly the article kind of concludes with this interesting position but they say we need to treat hospitals as information technology companies now I, I get that though but they say in the increasingly digital world where all of these threats exist hospitals and health systems have to take the proper steps to improve security and uh, both internally and externally, and will not only be beneficial to hospital performance, but it's really the key to overall continuing health and quality of the organization, of the care we deliver, and positive patient outcomes. We can no longer be viewed as just patient care centers only, but we're like hotbeds of information technology about our patients and all the patients that we treat. And so we need to really double down on that. So with that, let's take a brief pause here, Reid then you and I will come back and we'll talk about some of the things that are happening on a regulation perspective, some of the new federal laws and even state laws that are going to be important as we start to map out what is our ethical approach towards collecting first-party data. We'll do that right after this pause.
0: Now let's jump in. We Our, our next article, I think, is really pretty interesting, and it's uh, not that all the rest of them aren't interesting, but... Uh, this is from uh, HealthITSecurity.com, How New Federal State Laws Impact Healthcare Data Privacy. So again, there's the stuff we all know about, and we talk a lot about, you, you know, hear about the Stark Law and HIPAA and, you know, these different things that we've bounced around marketing for some time. But they say in here, along with HIPAA's requirements for safeguarding PHI HIPAA-covered entities also must pay close attention to the patchwork of federal and state data privacy laws that dictate how different types of consumer data are treated. All right, wait a minute. So it's it's different now? Like there's more?
1: (laughs) Well, what they're saying here is that HIPAA preempts certain state-level consumer data privacy laws. It actually kind of overrules that, particularly if the HIPAA standards are more stringent than those local laws. However... These exceptions or exemptions do not mean that the law never applies to healthcare data. And there are cases where especially healthcare data is being held by non-HIPAA covered entities. So this article tries to kind of pull this all together to just give us a sense of where the landscape is at. And I have to tell you, it's a little bit of uh, an interesting world
0: that we live in. Like you mentioned, super complex, confusing patchwork. I don't know that instills a ton of confidence in me is that we're going off of a, a patchwork, a quilt, if you will, of data and uh, laws and regulations on the federal and state levels. But anyway, here, here we are. They start out by talking about the fact that data privacy laws in the U.S. vary wildly, wildly, they say, by state and industry. So the, the example that they give here, the Fair Credit Reporting Act Oh, and we all know the FCRA, protects information found in credit reports. The Graham-Leach-Billy Act requires consumer financial products, like loans, for example, to explain how they share your data. Mm-hmm. This is like when you buy a house or a car, I guess. It's like, I don't know, dude. I'm just signing and initialing a million pages. (laughs) That's true. But but anyway, there's also the the, the Family Educational Rights Act uh, that dictates how you can request uh, student uh, education records.
1: That's a patchwork, right, if you think about that. When it comes to HIPAA, HIPAA is there to safeguard protected health information held by covered entities and business associates. Organizations that fall under that purvey have the advantage of being held to a data privacy and security standard that's pretty, pretty much higher than any other industry, they say. In some cases, compliance with HIPAA equates to compliance with other, more general data privacy standards. But a person was quoted here, Ryan Blainley, who's the head of a global privacy and security group. He indicated that unlike many other types of organizations, Healthcare organizations have a foundation of complying with HIPAA. They're entering into these BAAs with vendors to ensure that they're compliant. However, healthcare organizations still need to closely follow the various state privacy laws to ensure that they're able to supplement those policies, procedures, and practices by what's happening in that particular municipality, state, or what have you. So this is really where it comes into this patchwork quilt. And the first part of the patchwork... Is this thing called the American Data Privacy and Protection Act? You want to talk about what that is, Reid?
0: In early June, congressional leaders released a bipartisan draft bill called the aforementioned American Data Privacy and Protection Act. And if it's passed, it would establish a national framework to protect consumer data. It gives consumers protections against discriminatory use of their data and mandate that companies minimize the amount of data they need to collect to deliver products and services. Did you catch that? It mandates that companies minimize the amount of data that they need to collect to deliver their products and services. And so anyway, th- this act would largely preempt, they say, state privacy laws and takes notes uh, from the uh, the EU's general data protection, so GDPR, that we've heard a lot about.
1: Yeah. So in this case, consumers can be allowed to opt out of targeted advertisements And it would also add in some additional data privacy protections for people that are minors. It requires data brokers to register with the FTC and have a level of security, which is kind of, that's a lot like HIPAA, the way HIPAA is written. And it goes into a lot of different things. Here's one call out about a sensitive data type. Any information that describes or reveals the past, present, or future physical health, mental health, disability, diagnosis, or healthcare treatment of an individual.
0: This changes the internet entirely, like functionally how the internet works. I wonder what the what the install time of this is. I mean, it's not like you can just flip a switch, but still, I think it's fascinating to think about that we just do a big giant quilt, uh, if you will, that talks about past, present, and future. Well, how do you know what the future is? Well, and moreover, it's different
1: for hospital systems as opposed to like Fitbit apps and Apple Watches because they have different rules. They say here that tech companies that collect real-time physical health data from mobile apps and wearable fitness trackers would be subject to ADPPA, but HIPAA-covered entities like hospitals would
0: not be covered. So where does remote patient monitoring come in? You, know, you got like a third party group with a patch, a sticker, if you will. I mean, I guess it's got to be under the HIPAA or the BAA covered entity. That, so it's it's not part
1: of this? Well, it depends, I guess, where they are in the spectrum. There's going to be a gray area in between for people that are kind of consumer, but yet HIPAA protected. But let's add another level of complexity or let's add a few more patches to the quilt here, Reed. There are state-level data privacy laws that are confusing, too. Obviously, this uh, American Data Privacy Protection Act is really trying to focus on standardizing across the system, but there are currently five states that have enacted their own comprehensive data privacy law, Connecticut, California, Virginia, Utah, and Colorado. And guess what? Numerous other states have data privacy standards in the works as well. They vary in scope and content depending on the state. Some of them could be focusing, they give an example here. Some states' comprehensive data security bills include protections for genetic data and provisions regarding breach notification. So if you go to like a 23andMe or, or you know collecting DNA at a much broader level, some states cover that. Other states do not. This is where it gets really interesting. And that's the patchwork here, Reed, is that because of the way bills are created at a state and also at a, at a national level, There's so many different considerations that go into effect. There's always these changes that go up all the way up to before the bill is signed into law.
0: I'm going to need a matrix that explains all this. Uh, I feel like also on there is, you know, is there a state level income tax, you know, is also kind of on the matrix somewhere. This is insanity. I mean, it's not, I mean, I understand what we're doing here, but it's just like, good gracious. I mean, it's going to be very problematic or not problematic. Well, problematic, I guess, but. Like my organization, like we have hospitals in a multitude of states. You know, you may even, depending on your organization, it may vary based on, you know, where you're, you know, what type can't You can't just run one campaign across the whole company, so to speak.
1: That's right. And it gets even more complex, Read as you go into, as we start to allow more states to create their own healthcare-related regulations. This is my safe way of tiptoeing around, you know, the Roe v. Wade a decision that was made, because now we're getting into security and data privacy of individuals, and they're going to be vastly different by state over state. And that's going to cause a whole, just a big challenge here. The federal bill is trying to ease that complexity, but it doesn't it's not it's unclear whether it's going to override local data protection and security regulations as well. This is where we're at, right? We're in a weird world where we're going to have to figure this all out. You're right, for your company when you're going across the entire country, you might have to run different campaigns to based on what state you're in.
0: Before we get to the interview, they've got some compliance tips in here for covered entities. So the key advice is to think what you are doing With the patient information, Uh, with partnerships, with technology vendors, uh, if you're scrutinized by a regulator, would you be comfortable with what you're doing?
1: Moreover, would you be able to support everything you're doing from a regulatory perspective? As you're complying with HIPAA, are you also complying with the state level and FTC level regulations? And will your practice be able to hold up to scrutiny against those regulators? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Sounds a little daunting to me.
0: Covered entities should hold themselves to high privacy security standards. And I would say probably most of us do. And they talk in here about that, you know, that's what HIPAA you know, creates in a lot of cases. With HIPAA compliance locked down, covered entities can continue to improve their security posture and safeguards in compliance with the state and, and federal level laws.
1: The big takeaway here is that well, th- these are challenges, right? That we have to fall, that we have to look at, and there are going to be some gray areas. So what we have to do is we have to balance the right amount of innovation, which we cr- we really need desperately to do. How do we use this data to gather us insightful information so that we can respond to our consumers and patients' needs? But how do we do that in a way where we're still compliant with the laws? And I think that's the main takeaway of not only this article that we looked at, but our general conversation today, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Which kind of leads us to the interview that I had with Jeremy Rogers. Jeremy and I have known each other for many years. He's with IU Health. We sat down recently and we discussed how he's taking an approach to a first party data strategy. He's had a head start, by the way, which is kind of interesting. And where that's taking him in order to help support not only his marketing efforts, but his digital front door efforts, all the things that we've kind of all talked about, you know, over these last couple of episodes. So it's an interesting interview. We'll do that right after this break. And then Reed and I will be back to close out the show. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert segment of the podcast and today I am so excited to have you on the show Jeremy, someone that I've known for many years we've been in the industry, and you and I have spoken at conferences together we've networked together, and I'm so excited today that you're on the show Jeremy Rogers welcome to the Touchpoint podcast. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Chris. While you and I have known each other for many years, there may be some people listening in that do not. So I would love for you maybe to share a little bit about your background, who you are, where you work, how long you've been in the industry, those sorts of things. Would you mind sharing?
2: Happy to, Chris. So I've been in the industry for about six years now. So I work with IU Health. I lead digital marketing and experience This is actually my first and only job in healthcare. My prior background is in e-commerce, both consumer and B2B. So that's really what I enjoy the most about my job is kind of applying what I've learned over my career in a healthcare environment, highly regulated, very diverse, very complicated. Um, I tell people I still have far more questions than I have answers even after six years you know, don't we all
1: right? I mean, I've been in this business for, for a long time, too. And every day, it's like I learn something new, and I have new questions. So I appreciate that. I also like that you have that background in e commerce, because a lot of times when we talk about digital marketing and healthcare and for health systems, we really try to apply best practices from outside of our industry to ours. But our industry is a lot
2: different. Would you agree? I would totally agree, Chris. I think a lot of what I do is, you know, try to put the customer at the center of what we do. Um, you know, looking back at some things I inherited, that has not always been the case. I mean, I think the approach, the strategies have not historically been centered on the customer or the patient, depending on what, what word you use. And, and that's where, I, you know, coming up in my career, everything we did was very, very laser focused on customer. Um, so that, that still to this day is sort of the watchword of what we do when we make decisions. I
1: love that. I love that about you. Well, today, we're going to be talking about something that is kind of related to a, a, a number of topics that we've been discussing here on the podcast, because the role of digital marketing in healthcare is changing dramatically with the times. And, and it's not only because of the pandemic and other things like that. There's a lot of also concerns around security and how, what do we do with data, etc. So um, when you and I were kind of Banding about topics to, to, to discuss. You, you mentioned you would like to talk about first party search. Before we get started with talking about it, I think it always helps to level set our audience with what do you mean? What do we mean by it when we say first party search?
2: Yeah, no, it's a good question, Chris. Um, and, and words do matter. I totally agree. So I think when we talk about first party search, it's more than just things like on site search, it's really how we're leveraging first party data assets. To influence and deliver experiences for our customers. People talk about on site search, they look at that, they look to talk about SEO, but really if you boil it down, it's how you're leveraging your data to power those experiences. And if you look across, you know, health systems experiences that are digital, data really fuels almost every single one of those, whether it's on property or off. Um, whether it's you know provider-focused, location-focused, service-focused. I, I think for years, many folks in our roles have tried to do the holy trinity of how to really combine those facets, those assets in a way that um, delivers insights and moments that matter for customers. That's kind of what we talk about when we use the term first-party search. It, it can be things like local search, it can be voice search, it can be on-site search, it can be degrees of recommendation engines, it can be things like personalization, it touches all of those different aspects of what we deliver. I
1: like that definition, but it also kind of sets up a lot of questions for me. So, I mean, if you think about what you're saying here, there's a lot of different data sets that comprise this concept of first-party search. Uh, You mentioned like local search or voice search, and then site search and other things like that. One of the first things that spring to mind when we talk about that, Jeremy, is like, how do we structure that and normalize that in a way
2: that could make it more actionable and meaningful? Yeah, that's where the magic happened, Chris. it's it's not <laughs> it's not easy. I mean, yeah. I think that's my, you know, coming into my role over six years ago, um, my jaw dropped when I look looked at how much data we had and how loose, how unstructured, how disconnected and siloed it was. So we we've spent a lot of time and energy making those connections, normalizing the data, exposing it both internally and externally to get, again, connect those dots. Um, we are by no means done. I mean, this is a, a marathon, not a sprint, but you know, we, we've had some quick wins. We've found ways to leverage those assets in ways that absolutely do impact the experience in a positive way.
1: Yeah, I assume that when you started, you actually start within the marketing suite itself, right? Looking at all, yep. all of those assets. What'd you do? Did you like invest in like some kind of like Power BI or Google Data Studio solution or something like that? Is that the approach you took?
2: Like many large health systems, we have platforms like that coming out of our ears, Chris. So we had things off the shelf we could grab onto. Some of the genesis for us, frankly, was about five years ago. We were going through a cloud transformation, shifting a lot of our Martech stack off of on-prem onto a cloud-based solution. So we. Wanted to make the data more extensible, have API layers, have ways to connect the dots. We have some challenging master data realities internally, and so we wanted to abstract that away from our um, our web and digital front ends. We did that via via different um, ETL solutions, different normalization solutions, and, and we had a vision where we knew that the enterprise would be making some transformative investments in larger master data platforms longer term, We wanted to build our front end in a way that was more agnostic to that. So we can rip and replace some of those sources of truth without affecting the front end that the, the veneer that the customer touches, that was one of our key principles. So along the way, we had some key learnings, we had some some trials and tribulations. Um, you know, to this day, it's not perfect. I mean, we still have challenges where there's, you know, a provider's data is not accurate. There's some, you know, taxonomy issues, things like that. We have a location that may be changing or moving and the the data isn't synchronized in the way we would like it to be, and that's okay. When you do these things at scale, you're going to fall down and scuff your knee. That's all right. Um, but but you know, we, we still have had some quick wins and some really good successes from it. You mentioned that the you knew the system
1: was sort of moving towards this approach around data and measurement and things like that. I think that's one of the most important things that a lot of people that are in traditional digital marketing roles and health systems sometimes struggle with, right? It's like building that alignment and affinity with the larger data management strategies across the system. As you started down this path at IU Health, love to hear how you started to identify and, and, and then start, sort
2: of look at what they are doing and align your strategies to them. So we started with the ends in mind, the goals in mind. We knew we wanted to deliver a more agile, more e-commerce-like experience for our customers. So whether it's find a provider or local search, online scheduling, recommendations, engines, we had to have those core capabilities. And historically, we had none of the data or the the technology to make that happen. That was our North Star. And so we, we walked backwards from there, so sort of trying to triangulate, okay, what if we want to deliver the ability for us to merchandise our services and our providers in a way that would be most impactful for the customer. What are the key attributes we need? When do we need them? How often do we need to update them? Where do they come into play? And so backing from there, we had to work with our medical groups, with our IS departments on Here's the hierarchy of the data. Here's the governance behind it. Here's who owns it or influences it. Oftentimes it required us to say, you know what, we we, as marketers don't want to own this. We are not the experts, but we need to empower you as a business partner to be a better steward of your data so i mentioned earlier things like provider onboarding credentialing has always been a hot mess just for very many very many reasons so it's really it's really documenting okay here's the workflow from when a provider is first onboarded and credentialed all the way through when they leave or depart or retire from our health system what are the different inflection points along the way a lot of people just took that for granted they didn't realize the complexity like if a doctor changes where they practice if their hours are different if they become dual credentialed because we have some academic providers too all of those things affect their online presence, and we had to articulate that. So it took it took you know building consensus across a large, diverse medical group to get buy into that. Um, and that's just one example. Locations very similar. Like we have real estate folks, we have operations folks who own different parts, different attributes, and it's really just stitching all that together. That's where the magic happens.
1: Yeah, and it's really articulating it. We always talk about like how data can tell a good story. It's almost like you're telling the story of what good data can tell the organization. Yeah, agent, no right? doubt,
2: no doubt, Chris. It's yeah, yeah. We it's funny. I talk. We have a content team, and they they lament sometimes. So much of our content work these days is really core data work. It's not. It's not verbose it's not it's not video production or putting you know static words on HTML it is the data that powers these dynamic experience that's so much of the content work that we have nowadays
1: yeah I always try to articulate it to when I talk to providers or others in the or in enterprise it's I, I try to present it as like a use case um, and oftentimes it's kind of hard for like a provider to say oh if I change you know my whatever just this one little bit of my data. Why it's so important to get it cascaded onto
2: the right systems so that we can get it on the website. I, I think as a health system, your find a provider, find a doctor solution is probably one of your most hero products you have on your website. Historically, for us, it was very static. I mean, when I first came in, it was literally alphabetized from A to Z for. 3,000 plus doctors and I just, my, my jaw dropped. We, we spent a lot of time, I mean, there there are partners you can contract with that will do it for you, but we actually built our own solution because we wanted to have full control over it from a brand experience perspective. That took a Herculean effort, but you're exactly wow. right. To, to be able to deliver, you know, we, we are approaching 3,000 employed doctors now, all the different service lines and specialties. Think about providers who float to only offer virtual care now. They truly are um, the heart of what we offer. So we have to merchandise them and best represent them both both on property and off. And so having the core data assets in a, in a central location that we can own and influence and federate out to third parties, it's kind of that inside out approach. That's at the core of everything we're talking about today. You
1: know, and when you think about that, then suddenly your data becomes much more meaningful. And when I say your data, I'm talking about the organization's data, because I, I duly noted what you said earlier, right, that marketing communications often is the user of the data and can, can provide uh, good insights on how that data is being searched and consumed by consumers. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. we're not really the owners of the data. Yep. But I mean, that can start to um, uncover a lot of other use cases,
2: too, right? It absolutely can. I mean, we, we've had key learnings. I mean, even during the pandemic when we were spinning things up and down, even nowadays with provider shortages, where historically people did think about like hours of operations and access components and how critical it is that we can update those things in real time. So if we have an urgent care clinic, for example, that may have limited hours or they're going on temporary closure because of lack of staff, we have to make sure we have an easy button they can push to close their clinic down to turn off our third-party listings, to update their location on our websites, to show as closed, to turn off things like online scheduling or save a spot in line. I'm surprised you said it was only, what, like five years that took you to build this, right? That
1: to me is like astounding because I know what a Herculean effort that could potentially be at an organization. But now you're in a place where a lot of that data is sort of standardized and you have now the ability to use that data, one of the things I want to get into is how you use that for personalization. Because I know a lot of organizations want to go into the personalization world, but they start to realize that you know they may not be set up. How did your standardizing of your data, how did this first-party search approach help to start to inform and empower your personalization strategies? Yeah,
2: definitely very connected. And we were fortunate back about five years ago when we were embarking on that web rebuild, we had decided that personalization was going to be one of the other core principles. So we knew going in, having a personalization engine that could tap into this first-party data was going to be a critical success factor. Um, So we we chose the technology. We chose an approach for that. Um, We started small. So um, I've spoken at conferences about this as well, but I think you know personalization means a lot of different things to different people. You don't have to go from zero to a hundred right away. You can do small things like you know location-based personalization or campaign-based personalization. But again, those things are all predicated on having the data in your system to deliver a meaningful, relevant experience. If you're personalizing with garbage data, you're not gonna have the impact. You can't you can't drive conversion optimization. You cannot even ensure that you're giving the right message, whether it's, you know, content personalization or CTA personalization. If you're not confident that your your data is accurate, mm-hmm. um, it's very, very risky. And so we we started small, we grew from there. We've done all those things. You know, we, we do a lot of location-based personalization. So now that we're confident in the location data for our providers, For our clinics and where those services are offered, we can very narrowly geolocate. So we, you know, we have a presence pretty much across Indiana, but it's not consistent. We have areas where we don't have major hospitals. We have areas where we don't offer urgent care services. And so we, we personalize that based upon um the, the user's location and, and to, to the nth degree. It, it's not just things like homepage static personalization. It's all the way through we we use a, a recommendation engine. So if we're recommending a nearby provider or a nearby service, it mm-hmm. may be informed by the user's navigation path through the website. It would leverage their search behavior, you know, um, using NLP and other ML, you know solutions will leverage the the search behavior to actually drive effect affect search results, affect the recommendation engine, all of those things. And then it also ties into our, our multivariate testing. So we do a ton of A B testing across our web presence too. All different things, you know, creative personalization and A-B testing, the content testing too. Again, it's all so tightly coupled together. You really can't do one without the other. It's just the reality. Every so often, the, like a new shiny bobble
1: comes through and says, hey, look, we, we need to do chatbots on our website or, hey, we want to do you know personalization or whatever it might be. But... You know, at the at the root of it, you have to have a very strong data layer in order to make those things happen, and that's not where people first you know go to. They they want they want that expression. They look at the the chatbot or whatever. Um, have you faced that like in your organization too? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. To-
2: totally. I and mean, I I um, I don't drink the Kool Aid on chatbot as much as some people do, but I think we've all we've all had bad chatbot experiences where you ask a question, it simply is not prepared to answer. If you don't have a Fallback approach there, it it really is. It's not a an appropriate brand experience, and so we've we've really we we do have chatbots. Don't get me wrong, we have great partners there. We have really backed off how we use them because we. The technology is great, but we don't have the data and the experiences to, to do things in a proper brand voice and deliver the experiences our customers deserve. So that's that's my perspective there. But you're exactly right. The, da- the data is not the sexy part. People want the bells and whistles. Um, so we, we tend to focus less on the technology or the functionality even more about what are we trying to deliver. So when when speaking with our stakeholders internally, whether they're providers or IT folks or other business leaders. What is the business goal we're trying to help contribute to? And then we can, we can make recommendations. We can be consultative experts to say, hey, did you know we can do things like this to help connect a campaign with a clinical outcome or help an area where there may be an access need or an abundance of access that we can drive more volume in? That's what people connect with is how you can leverage these cool capabilities to, to affect a business or a clinical outcome.
1: Yeah, that really is. I mean, I could see that. I again, I think about it from a systems perspective, and I can see how that works. And sometimes it's a little bit challenging to illustrate that right to our, our business partners that we're trying to create these experiences. But you know, I for years now, Jeremy, you know me, I've been talking about ROI of, of what we do, and really, what what you're doing is you're really helping to create a better experience with the data, which ultimately is the end-all ROI for the organization because, you know, not all marketing drives the bottom line, right? We, we really are driving experience.
2: Yeah, we, we talk a lot about hard dollars and soft dollars when it comes to ROI, Chris, and I think our approach has been we we fund a lot of these things centrally. We, we build kind of a field of dreams where if we build it, they will come, but then we also look for a gain share. So if we have business partners, whether it's a service line or, or a clinical location, There, there are ways they can ship in in terms of paying for certain parts of the experiences, whether it is a campaign-specific cost or a a, you know a capacity-based cost. That's been our our real our focus has been have a model that we can have the core foundational capabilities, and then we get buy-in from our business partners to to implement for specific areas. Yeah,
1: that's really good. Okay, so I before we close this conversation, I do have to talk about. The fact that a lot of organizations are kind of looking now at Google Analytics and kind of the conversion to GA4. How are you looking at this sort of this whole concept of we have a moving uh, our analytics platforms? I'm Are you a Google Analytics user? We are
2: indeed, just like yeah. most of you
1: are too. Absolutely. Yeah. So what do you what are you doing to prep for that?
2: Yeah, great question. So we've we've already got GA four tagged across the board. So we're preparing. You know, you get that that year cut over. Basically, if you want to have twelve months worth of data, you've already had to do that as of last month, I believe. So we're well prepared for that. Um, we've been looking at this for a while though, because you know the, the the privacy piece you mentioned has been so critical. We have not rolled out what I would call a true CDP consumer data platform. I'm not sure if we have the the financial wherewithal. To to do that just yet, but there are ways you can kind of back into it a little bit or or take a stepwise approach. Um, GA4 is a big win in terms of privacy and not being IP focused anymore. That's a must have. So I think anybody who's got their head in the sand over that, they're fooling themselves. It's, it's inevitable, regardless of whether you're based in California or not. Some of these privacy restrictions are going to be, they're gonna, the wave will crash all, over all of us inevitably. That's going to happen. So we're, we're we're operating under that mindset. We're always very careful. I mean, especially recently, some of the, the Metapixel stuff and things like that, um, that, that's got all of us on edge, obviously. So we've we've been well positioned for that, but analytics is very important. I, I will tell you like I've used GA for gosh, it's been over 15, almost 20 years now. Um, you almost take it for granted how ubiquitous it is, but like recently, like we, we've had a couple of vendors that have mentioned how they're no longer going to support GA, which has caught me by surprise because we, you know, it's, you know, in terms of cross-domain tracking and multi-funnel attribution, all that stuff, it's such a key data source for us for all of our scorecards and dashboards. If you have gaps in that, that, that you're not going to be able to populate, we haven't cracked the code yet on what that future looks like. But if you're not thinking about what, what that would look like, you're gonna be in trouble, I think in a matter of months, not years. That's my perspective.
1: Yeah, I I would agree with you on that. That certainly is something that should be top of mind to all organizations. But are there some other things that health systems that are kind of thinking about their first party data strategies and first party search and and maybe going down the path that you started on,
2: what are some things that they should keep in mind or, or pitfalls they should avoid? Yeah. So I think all of us are in different spots. Some of us maybe are, are uneven in terms of where we have investments versus not investments. What I would say is don't don't try to boil the ocean. I mean, if you try to do all of this in a matter of months, you you won't be able to afford it. You'll have burnout. You we, None of us have sufficient resources to tackle all that right away. I would say if you can, if, if you're doing a web rebuild like we were, Put it at the heart of what you're trying to deliver, and, and then you can you can begin aligning in that direction over time. Fail fast. You know, don't don't be afraid to you know focus on one of the pieces before the other. Um, you know, for example, like we we still have big location problems because we have not, as a health system, we have not invested in location data management capabilities that we need to. So we've had to disintermediate some of those challenges because of it so we're not perfect there but if you go in with that mindset that you're not going to be perfect you are going to have ugly data you're going to have gaps in what you are trying to do build in that resiliency hardwire it into your approach and and you'll 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 find improvements and just keep iterating you're we're not we're not building a statue here we have to continue to iterate over and over again that's my key takeaway
1: I like that build in resiliency into your data strategy. That's really good, Jeremy. Wow, this is a cool conversation. I really enjoyed it, Jeremy. I know people listening in; they may want to connect with you online. What are some ways they can find you?
2: Yeah, um, I'm all over LinkedIn, so please connect with me there. Just search Jeremy Rogers IU Health. I'll be happy to accept invites there. And then on Twitter, um, I'm more of a a lurker than active, but I (laughs) I will I will DM you. I will respond to you. So it's at Jeremy M Rogers. Happy to connect with folks there too.
1: Well, we'll put links to that in the show notes. I really encourage people listening in that don't know Jeremy and are going down this path. This is de- definitely reach out to him. He's a super
2: smart guy. And, um, you know, Jeremy, I, look I wouldn't forward go that to- far, Chris. Well, come on. <laughs> I'm, I'm about a mile wide and inch deep. I tell
1: you. <laughs> well, you are uh, for the for the sake of this podcast. You are an expert for for the last 25 minutes. So there we got that.
2: You are far too kind, my friend. Well, Jeremy, thank you so
1: much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And we have to have you back on pretty soon.
2: My pleasure, Chris. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Special thanks to Jeremy for coming on the show. I appreciate his thoughts and insights Again, somebody out there you know, really working through these topics. It's always great to hear from from folks. Uh, out in the field, getting ideas, uh, sharing ideas. So appreciate his time. All right, another quick plug. Touchpoint Health is the website. Sign up for the TPS report. We'd love to hear from you. Rate, review, subscribe—all that kind of fun stuff. Look forward to uh, to having these conversations in person soon. So sign up for the TPS report. You'll also see when some upcoming conferences and opportunities to connect in person might be. All right, uh, Chris, what do you have for a recommendation today? Read. I'm
1: going to recommend a show, a streaming show, on Disney+. Plus, and it's the new Miss Marvel series. Have you seen this? I have not. It's a six-episode show. It's actually really good. It's an ongoing Marvel universe. Boy, I can't keep up with the Marvel universe. There's so many movies out there. It's so many different shows. But this one, is. Uh, it's about a pakistanian teenager who lives in new jersey uh, her family you know, transplanted to new jersey so she's an american native but pakistani american and how she inherits a bracelet that actually brings out uh, her superpowers so to speak it was a six-part series and i'm going to tell you what i love about the show i've i'm a big fan of you know marvel and other shows like that something set it apart from everything else the first of all it really leaned in on understanding and helping us understand the Pakistanian American culture and the way they live. And it actually went back to the Pakistanian roots of, you know, way back when they separated from India, which was a, kind of a, a great little history lesson. The other part of it is though, it was just filmed really cool and beautiful. It was kind of a, the cinematography was really, really interesting. The designs were really great, heavily accenting on artistry and, uh, and adopting that comic book kind of concept behind this and just overall a very enjoyable show i would say it's very appropriate for teenagers to watch if you uh are nice. into superhero movies and you don't mind you know six hours it's really six part series they're not quite an hour i would definitely recommend it the new miss marvel series on disney plus that's my recommendation
0: Very nice. Very, very nice. I'm actually also going to recommend a uh, streaming series. It's new. came out July the 1st. Uh, It's called The Terminal List. Chris Pratt is the lead, if you will, uh, for those that, that, speaking of superhero movies and Jurassic World and all that kind of fun stuff. Anyway, Chris Pratt's the main main person. This is on Prime. It's a Prime uh, original, I guess, or, or whatever they call them. Uh, But called The Terminal List, and it's actually based off of a series of books, New York uh, uh, best-selling books, uh, written by a SEAL. It's actually a series of books a guy named Jack Carr wrote. Uh, So this first season, I believe, is to my understanding, is based off of uh, five books or so, The Terminal List being one of those, and that's the name of the series. But it follows a Navy SEAL, uh, a guy named James Reese. That's uh, Chris Pratt's character after his uh, his platoon is ambushed during a covert mission and so anyway he comes back home to his family and all the stuff that then happens and and what he kind of goes on a mission to figure out you know what happened and why and all this kind of stuff so anyway it's kind of a drama thriller action you know born supremacy kind of stuff you know people have seen those or the Jack Ryan series or something like that but it's really good. I want to think there's eight or ten episodes, something like that. I think there's eight episodes in season one. Really well done if you like that type of a, of a show. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. I wasn't aware of that, so cool. Yep, just came out. Just came out. So, All right. Well, hey, everybody. Thanks for, again, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for telling a friend. Uh, reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we enjoy getting those notes and messages throughout the week. And we would be excited to hear uh, topics you might find interesting, people we should have on the show, things like that. So be sure to reach out to us. And like we say every week, that's Chris Boyer. I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next time. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.